Welcome to the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. And I am Boomer. And we are recording in our respective COVID bunkers in Louisiana and Texas. This is the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp Flix. And it is a week into January of 2021. And I feel like there is way more to cover in the world and our lives that we could possibly touch on an hour long movie discussion episode. Uh, give us some credit. It's a week and a half in. It's the 11th. We survived a lot so far. I think I stopped the clock um, when there was an armed insurrection in Washington, D.C. last week. I think I've just been like stuck on that moment, mostly just refreshing the same couple social media pages and listening to the same two or three radio stations, just constantly filling my brain with that stuff, even though nothing has changed since that time. Give or take 90 or so arrests. Yeah, I mean, I've said it before many times over the course of the past eight, nine, ten months. What a time to be technically alive and also what (laughs) in the name of god is happening i mean you know i spoke with my relatives and none of them really wanted to talk about it i'm sure it pains them much more to have been wrong than it pains me to have been right but i take no joy in having been right about having seen this coming and i also take no joy in anybody else's delight in having seen this coming on the internet we all did yeah obviously i'm full of uh, a lot of salt and vinegar about it without any real clear thoughts on what to even say at this point i have unclear thoughts on what actually happened and what the intent was personally also i feel like we're still in the middle of it and up until inauguration day i'm not going to feel like this is over yeah i mean even after inauguration day it's not like the problem goes away oh yeah there's much deeper seated problem than that I don't know. We're going to talk about a movie today that is like wildly appropriate to this topic, which was a surprise to me because I picked it before there was a coup attempt. So maybe we can hold some more thoughts on the vile actions of uh, the far right for a few minutes, especially I'm kind of peeved about it because this is like one of my favorite times of the year for the website is like looking back on like the last year of movies and like list making and collaborating with y'all and like what really meant a lot to us as a group. Like I love best of the year times and usually that's like just a joy. And now it's like a life raft. I'm just holding on to this list exchange season more as like, I need this to focus on something else for 10 minutes. Um, and not just like, this is my favorite hobby. That's fair. Are you watching a lot of 2020 stuff still to catch up with the list making season? Like, I, I don't know what your movie um, watching habits have been in these hell times. Well, Normally, by this time of year, I have moved past the point where I'm trying to catch up on everything uh, from the previous year. Normally, that is what my December looks like and not my January, because I feel like I generally get you my top list pretty early. I feel like normally I have it by January 1st, and I do not this year, because so much of what I saw was disappointing to me on a personal level. You know, you read my review of Wonder Woman 84 and my disappointments with that. That's such a bummer. And I don't normally have trouble getting to 10. Normally I have trouble keeping it under 15 or 20. And this year it's just like, there's so much that's just like right on the edge and in the margins that would not normally get into a top list, but just because I've seen so little and there was so little, although you and Brittany and James seem to have found quite a lot to watch. I don't know. I maybe have just been doom scrolling for the past, well, four years and then um, energetically (laughs) for the past 10 months and so maybe I just like completely missed out on everything that you guys were seeing. But I have been uh, still trying to catch up on 2020 films because 
you know, we were just talking off mic earlier about how like I have copy for you on things that like I wrote weeks ago at this point, but just right now it's the time to get out the 2020 stuff and the year end stuff. And I even have copy on things that I haven't sent to you because I don't want to get them in the queue before things that are actually going to be on my top 10 list. And until I figure out what that's going to look like, even though it's pretty late in the game, you know, I'm still trying to catch up and see like, Ooh, you know, you, uh, you mentioned CC liked and you and Brittany both liked swallowed that. I remember seeing trailers for, I really wanted to see, and then just missed, but yes, I am, I am still watching 2020 things. Um, you know, recently we put out the copy on Bill and Ted, which I found to be uh, kind of a personal disappointment. I watched the movie Villains, which I do want to ask you about uh, Psychobitty stuff at some point, because I thought that was a 2020 film. Technically, it's 2019. And I was shocked to learn that Kira Sedgwick is now older than Betty Davis was whenever they made Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. <laughs> that shocked the hell out of me that freaked me out with octavia spencer in ma i was like she's old enough to do this and i guess apparently she is <laughs> apparently yeah. just like over 35 you're a psycho bitty uh in today's standards uh, i have seen some classics i uh watched dead of night from 1945 uh not long after we spoke last it's an anthology british horror film most famous for the fourth or perhaps fifth, but definitely the final segment in which a man and his ventriloquist dummy end up engaging in a battle of wills with one another. Of course, that eventually became like the plot of two separate Twilight Zone episodes and various other things. <laughs> and, you know, Goosebumps mascot was the ventriloquist dummy, but Dead of Night is about a man who wakes up and is called to a mysterious country house and on the drive there. And as he arrives, he starts to experience um, some pretty intense deja vu as he meets the people who are there. And then each of them tell sort of a story about how they came to be there or about their past. And everyone's anxiety just keeps getting worse and worse as everything seems more and more and more familiar. And then the film ends kind of tragically and then starts over again with him waking up from that dream to get the call to go to the cottage house. It's a classic. It's pretty creepy. Uh, I remember reading about it years ago, back when Maitland McDonough had a, I, we would call it a blog, but it predates the word blog, like a weekly column on the TV Guide website where people would write to her with their like half-remembered reminiscences of films that they had seen years before. And there were some that just like popped up over and over again. Everybody has scant memories of Bad Ronald. Everybody barely remembers The Legend of Boggy Creek. And for some reason, a lot of people remember seeing Dead of Night, but could not remember the title. So people would write in with details and she would be like, oh, the movie that you're looking for is Bad Ronald or, you know, Legend of Boggy Creek, etc." That was good. And I watched The Nest with Carrie Coon and... Jude Law, which was decent, but didn't really have anything new to say. It felt very much like, oh, these are really great performances, but I have seen this movie a hundred times, you know? It looked like one of those mid-budget movies for adults that everyone says they miss, but when they actually <laughs> come out, no one loves it, you know? It's just like, that was that was pretty good. Yeah. I mean, the end, I, I enjoyed 
where it ended up. And I guess it has something to say about the relationship between like 80s deregulatory greed and our current contemporaneous deregulatory greed. It looks at how the investors of the 80s and the men who had perfectly valid existences where they were comfortable were compelled to get more and more and more out of some sort of weird psychological compulsion more than a need and how that doesn't necessarily have anything to say about where we've ended up but it does help trace the genealogy of many of our contemporary problems and then most recently i watched a polish film i will not attempt to read this polish title but it translates to nobody sleeps in the woods tonight it's basically a friday the 13th movie but made in poland it's about this group of students there are five of them in this particular like camping group uh, with one adult guide there's the implication that they've been sent to this sort of electronics free camp for disciplinary reasons like it's clearly disciplinary for at least one or two of them but a couple of them seem to be troubled but mostly well adjusted to their circumstance or they just have some problem at home that wouldn't really warrant you know the sort of like into the woods intervention that some of them seem to be having but when i say that it's basically friday the 13th i mean there are multiple kills that are directly taken straight from friday the 13th and I, I'm sending copy uh, over to you on this one. So, you know, attentive listeners, be on the lookout for like where I actually tracked these individual kills too. But one of them is the infamous grab the person in the sleeping bag and beat them against the side of a tree kill from Friday the 13th, part seven. <laughs> so uh, it's mostly Friday the 13th with a couple of other things thrown into the blender. It's, it's entirely made of recycled content, which it's fine for what is being hailed as Poland's first slasher. I mean, I guess that's sort of what you might need to do if it's your first film in a genre coming out of that culture. Like you might just have to borrow everything from someone else instead of reinventing the wheel before you start to work on how to make your wheel work. But it's on Netflix and it's decent if you just want a fun sort of candy colored Friday the 13th. But it's definitely bizarre and also like trigger warning there are nazis in it at the end but then again trigger warning there are nazis uh in and out of the capitol house these days so i don't know <laughs> how much of a barrier you can put between yourself and reality considering that we're, we're dealing with that in the real world right now as well so what have you been watching um i've been watching a lot of classics that have nothing to do with uh best of the year catch-ups <laughs> <laughs> i mean we did our um top 20 podcast uh me james and Brittany recently so that was like just a lot of work putting that together and we're gonna do an honorable mentions episode next week so i'm, I'm still catching up with last year a little bit but for the most part i'm like disappearing into just classic films i had never seen before i watched like meet me in st louis and a couple other like christmas classics over the holidays but i think the most like rewarding thing from that run were two adaptations of Francis Elijah Hodson novels from the 90s. Okay. So I watched The Secret Garden from 1993. Oh. Both of these movies have like A-plus directors and cinematographers. So that one was Agnieszka Holland and it was shot by Roger Deakins. And it just looks fucking gorgeous. Like, yes, it's half this like gothic horror 
uh, in this like spooky house where these children are just like alone in these like damp locations with no sunlight and only the moors outside to keep them company. And then half it's this beautiful nature footage. Deacon shoots a lot of like time elapsed footage of these flowers taking root and blooming. And like the kids got these like hard exteriors and then learn empathy and how to like be people with each other. And they bloom along with the secret garden that they're collaborating on. Just a really gorgeous, wonderful film. Yeah. Truly magical in a way that doesn't feel like desperate. Like it's not trying to like underline how magic it is at you all the time, which I think there was an adaptation last year. I saw the trailer for that looked very CGI heavy and like, uh, trying to like play up the whimsy in like a very like just trying way. Did you watch this as a kid? Yes. I, I remember the film very clearly. And not only that, I remember very clearly being confused by the beginning of it. I don't know if maybe you can clear this up for me. It feels like there's a party that's happening downstairs while is it Mary? Yeah. Uh, Mary quite contrary. Cause she yes. uh, is a contrarian who hates everyone. <laughs> oh my God. The, the names in this one, is it is it Lord Craven and his son? Yep. Yeah. Yep. The 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 names are pretty spot on. But Mary at the beginning, she's upstairs, like in her room while her parents are having a party. And then she comes down and everyone has died of some sort of fever. Yeah, she's like in India being raised by her servants because her parents are kind of like hands off socialites. And she watches them party through her little little window peephole. Um, but she's not allowed to socialize really. And there's like an earthquake, I think in India and like her parents and pretty much everyone else in her life gets crushed. And I think she hides under a bed and gets saved um, from the falling debris. And that's why she has to move in with her ghost uncle. I feel like as a child, I was confused because I thought everyone had died of a plague over during the night. <laughs> Very quickly. Yeah. During the night while she was upstairs, which obviously that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but is what I thought when I was young. So I don't know, but yes, I do remember this one very clearly. And this one was also one that my school had on VHS to occasionally be pulled out mm. on a rainy day. This and the little princess, which is what I assume you also watched. That's the next one. Yep. Yes. And actually I had seen that one as a kid, the secret garden missed me, but, um, Probably my first Alfonso Cuaron movie as a kid was A Little Princess, as I assume it was for most people our age. Right. Before Itumama Tambien was a different track in high school. This one's shot <laughs> by Emmanuel Lubeski, which is another, you know, A-plus cinematographer. It's a lot more traditional, I would say, for like 90s children's media. It's like this little girl becomes an orphan while she's at boarding school with like all these rich yeah. kids. And she's the richest among them until her father dies in the war. So we think, and she has to become the servant for the kids that were her classmates, like 10 seconds before his death. Yeah. Lubeski only really shows off in these like bedtime stories. She tells to her fellow boarders um, that are like illustrations of the Ramayana. And they're like really beautiful. It looks like the fall kind of, except that they have these like CGI demons with like 90 software technology. <laughs> <laughs> Really poor choice there, but uh, for the most part, the movie is just as, like, subtly magic. I don't know. There's just something about these two films that, like, aren't trying to impress you with how magical they are. A Little Princess's, like, entire thesis is every girl is a princess no matter whether they're wealthy or not. And that idea is potent enough in its own magic that it like transforms the lives of every little girl and grown woman she tells that to. Um, as she, like, holds on to her princesshood even though she like falls from grace and becomes a servant for a little while 
I don't think it's as good as the Secret Garden. Honestly, the Secret Garden like knocked me on my ass. This one was just like a nice nostalgia trip to a movie I remember watching at daycare one time as a kid. As you describe it, I feel like I don't remember anything about it. Like I definitely saw it. And I remember when I was seeing it, thinking it was different from the one that I knew, which was the Shirley Temple version. I swear I'm not 100 years old. I swear. <laughs> I know sometimes it seems like I am. I know that you saw my tweet last night about how when I was eight years old, my favorite television show when I was a child was Diagnosis Murder, in which you know, <laughs> Dick Van Dyke was an elderly doctor who solved murders at a hospital. And it came on right after Matlock. Like, it was clearly designed with the demographic of people who are dying in hospice care in mind. But I, when I was eight years old, that was my favorite show. I, you know, we talked about the match game. I swear I'm not a hundred years old, but I did see the Shirley Temple version first when I was a kid. And <laughs> I remember seeing this one and thinking that it was different, but that's really all that I remember about it. It seems like Hodgson's novels are like always being adapted. Like that 2020 secret garden was just ignored because it's very like, I don't know, just routine for her three like major novels. It's those two and Little Lord Fauntleroy. Those are always on TV and at movie theaters in some adaptation constantly. But like, I don't know, there's something about those two 90s movies that are like genuinely magical, even though the only like magical thing that happens in them really is that like there are children who talk to animals and communicate with animals in both movies. But other than that, it's like very practical, uh, grounded magic and very heartfelt. My heart was full watching those two films which I assume a lot of people need that feeling right now. I'd recommend that as comfort watching. In this locomotive we call home, there is one thing that between our warm hearts and the bitter cold. Clothing? Shields? No. Order. Order is the barrier that holds back the frozen death. We must, all of us, on this train of life, remain in our allotted station. We must, each of us, occupy our preordained particular position. So I kind of want to explain how I landed on Snowpiercer as a selection to talk about today. It was not coup-related, but we will be talking about coups during this conversation. Back in 2015, on our very first week as a website... Uh, me, James, and Brittany collaborated on our favorite movies of 2014. That was like how we started. And we picked Snowpiercer. I have not seen it since the theater. And because it was our first selection, I just wanted to revisit it in light of that. Like kind of like just making the laps. I, I haven't heard you talk about that movie much. I know that it made your 100 best films of the 2010s list. So I, I at least have confirmation that you have seen it before. But I just feel like it's a movie we don't discuss very often. I also thought it would be worthwhile to revisit it right now because last year, you know, Bong Joon-ho won Best Picture at the Oscars for Parasite, and that was the last good thing that happened. So seems like a good time to, like, just loop back and look at his English language debut, see how we felt about it at the time, and see if it holds up now. So I did not see it in theaters. I remember as early as 2013, after it had its sort of festival release, there were all of these articles on various blogs that I used to follow, Topless Robot, io9, 
the Mary Sue. Oh, Snowpiercer is the best movie of 2013 that nobody's seen. Oh, Snowpiercer is the best movie of 2013 that nobody's talking about. So again, I'm not 100 years old, I swear. But as soon as this video came to DVD, I got one in the mail from Netflix, because uh, that's what Netflix used to be, and <laughs> watched it. And it made me so angry then and now. Like, this is a movie that ended up on that list because it is so evocative of feelings in me. So many of the movies that I'm watching from the end of last year right now, trying to make my list, they don't make me feel anything. The Nest didn't make me feel anything. You know, Nobody Sleeps in the Woods Tonight didn't make me feel anything. And for me, a movie isn't necessarily at its best when it's technically competent or when it has certain elements that most people would consider to be like Oscar bait. That's not for me. I love movies that make me feel something, even if that's revulsion or disgust or righteous fury, as in the case of Snowpiercer. And God, this is a movie that it's only the second time I've watched it and the first time in at least, you know, five years. And I still had to pause it and get up and kind of like pace a little bit during it because it just the structure of their society is so infuriating and so familiar that it's not a surprise to look back and be like, yeah, this is a movie that stuck with me. I remember Tilda Swinton's speech about where the shoe belongs. I think about that speech at least once a month. Yeah, you're born a shoe. You belong in the bottom rung. It would be unnatural for you to ascend to class uh, you just will be stuck in that position your entire life because that is right and good. Yes. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. Like there's no room for debate. Moving on. Yeah. Uh, it, it's an infuriating speech and it's so entertainingly performed, just instantly iconic. Yeah. As she makes those motions with her hand that are later like echoed again by Ed Harris, who, uh, surprise, is in this movie and is the villain of this movie. That's a Venn diagram <laughs> that's just a circle. Well, I, I do want to talk to you about, you're saying, like, how the society is structured. And I feel like it's something I've seen echoed in so many movies since, but, like, vertically. I mean, there's really no reason to go over this movie plot-wise. Like, it is structured almost like a video game. It started as a comic book, and it is kind of, like, that simple, where, you know, poor people live at the back of this train, and rich people live at the front and they have to fight their way from the back to the front to take control of the class structure that they're like at the shit end of. Yeah. It's a parable that's extended because these are all the people left in the world because of climate change. This train is just looping around the planet on its one track and things are just kind of stuck. Your, your class is not something you can ascend. You're just sort of like assigned to it. And that's your lot in life. You might get to move to the front of the train solely for your body to be used to power it yeah and the way it works as a parable is just like that is capitalism is like this class structure to the point where like kids are taken from poor people to create the capital that uh, keeps the world going by you know sacrificing child labor which i mean capitalism needs child labor to work at its accelerated rate that it works at right now yes um and it's just something we don't look at but it is just beneath the surface and something we've just all sort of accepted as like a horror of life because there's very little we can do to stop it. Yeah, one of the great 
powerful things that unions and leftward progress has done for us in the past 100 years is mostly bring child slavery to an end in America. But in the rest of the world, it is still a reality that fuels our own consumption. We've just put it where we can't see it at the back of the train. Yeah, we've outsourced it. And I think that like horizontal orientation of that structure is kind of unusual. Like I'm thinking of stuff like high rise or platform or us, which we paired with parasite last year when we did parasite on the podcast, we were talking about like vertical class distinctions in that film. I think the politics in this film about climate change and the class distinction are a lot more on the surface and like less nuanced than they are in parasite. And I love that about this movie. Like you were saying, it's infuriating but it's also just out in the open and like is meant to incite you. Yeah, none of it is subtle and rightly should not be. No, it's not subtle, but it is like paired with entertainment candy. Like there are like a lot of fun fight sequences with like axe wielding maniacs uh, shot with like night vision goggles or you get Allison Pill in the, the uh, classroom, the school cart and she like opens fire on them and just the uh, sort of absurd cleanliness and like 1950s kitsch of that scene is like really fun to watch, but it is all in service of this like political parable about these, these workers at the back of the train trying to seize the means of production and um, how ultimately futile that is because they are being used uh, without their knowledge to cause damage towards themselves And that's kind of like where the movie ends is like kind of this letdown where they think they're going to seize power over the train. And it turns out that they were just basically participating in their own population control the entire time. And um, Ed Harris explains this in his like criminal mastermind speech. He describes it. um, He describes their like revolution as a blockbuster production uh, with with unpredictable plot twists, which is, uh, you know, kind of poking fun at the idea of making a movie about this kind of parable in the first place wearing his goddamn silk pajamas just <laughs> what an uh, infuriating <laughs> and it's also worth noting that as they move from the back to the front they do sort of ascend through a sort of hierarchy of needs where some of the first things that they do encounter are things that would be necessary like a school but which are maintained solely for the power structure. And as they go forward, it moves from a school to like a dentist's office, which again is something that a society needs. Like it's a, a, a medical care, but then gets into just like, oh, now we're in the fancy bar and everybody's staring as we go through. And then from there into like the rave, into like the opium den, right? It's just this constant ascendancy through the half measures where it's like, well, if we have a school, we should have a dentist. If we have a dentist, then why not a society with a salon where everyone's getting their hair and nails done, where just barely out of sight, children are being murdered by like fascists in order to keep the population under control. Yeah, I've been eating processed roach parts my entire life so that you can... um party at raves <laughs> yeah it's like an infuriating uh reality to be confronted with as you've like gone through so much bloodshed and lost so many of your you know friends and family on that journey um to find that at the end is got to be just completely blood curdling and this is actually something that i was curious about at the time is you know there are large parts of the world where like insect protein is part of the normal diet 
I've had insect protein. I've had protein bars made out of cricket flour. I've tried that as like a novelty at like um, the insectarium and stuff. It's not something that's like a regular part of my diet, but it yeah, is for a, a large part of the world. Yeah. And I'm not sure what the, I, I get that it's supposed to disgust our protagonist. Although we learn later that he's eaten worse, but <laughs> I, I did not know who Bong Joon-ho was in 2014 when Netflix delivered this to me through the mail. And I remember thinking like, God, that's kind of racist, isn't it? There are huge parts of the world that eat, <laughs> that eat you know, animal protein. And I have friends here in Texas who think the same about us in Louisiana eating like crawfish, like to them crawfish are basically indistinguishable from insects you know well some people do call them mud bugs yes and so it's like oh i you know there is sort of a cultural element to how disgusted you might be in that moment but clearly our protagonist is disgusted yes well i think there's specifically it's because they're like cockroaches you know i'm not against eating bugs in general but I do get squicked out just looking at a flying cockroach when they cross my path. It wouldn't be my first choice. I I empathize with their desire yeah. to not eat that anymore, for sure. Right. Especially when other people are enjoying sushi and all you've ever had your entire life is uh, gelatinous cockroach bars. Yeah. You don't want that to be your only sustenance, anyway. Um, I do want to talk about the Captain America Eats Babies meme that this movie became when it first came out. Oh, really? It, like you said, Bong Joon-ho was not necessarily like a household name. I feel like people made fun of that speech where he confesses that he knows what babies taste like and he's like ashamed of that. I think this movie's pretty well acted from him. I didn't really know who he was at the time, so I didn't really get the meme then and I don't get it now. I don't know. Kind of a ridiculous speech, I guess, but in the context of this comic book level parable I, I thought it, it fits the tone of the, the movie it didn't stick out to me as like an embarrassing moment yeah i that scene is harrowing okay good <laughs> it should be you know for a lot of people like comedy eases the tension so i can see how like confronting the hideousness of it while watching it having to make it into a meme or a joke in order to be able to process the true like horror of what he's saying which is that he almost ate baby jamie bell which we're gonna have to talk about the fact that he was he got on the train when he was a teenager and jamie bell was a baby they are four years apart in age (laughs) maybe five maybe six but it's like it's something like both of them were born in like there there's not enough of an age disparity and i don't know if they're trying to make us think that jamie bell is supposed to be 17 or 18 look i love jamie bell he is not 17 or 18 in this movie. He's like 28. Oh, yeah. I didn't read him as like a teenager at all. I didn't even think about like the logistics of that. Yeah. Well, he, you know, he talks about how he lived 17 years before the train and 17 years on the train. And he's recalling the very beginnings of the train occupation in which he killed Edgar's mother and then was going to eat Edgar. And instead, John Hurt gave them an arm to eat. So it is, it is clearly that, that Jamie Bell is supposed to be 18 years old in this movie. And while he is fresh-faced and beautiful, <laughs> 18, he is not. You know, I, I'm thinking, like, back when we picked this as movie of the year, I think the main thing we said was, like, you know, it's a very on-the-surface political allegory. Don't think about the details too much. Um, I, I think that might hold true um, when you start counting years like that. <laughs> like, maybe the specifics don't 
make as much sense as the the politics, which are very clear and on the surface and, you know, announced as soon as the opening scroll, which tells you, you know, climate change ruined everything and the whole world's been condensed to this one societal structure on this train. It is odd that it's not, they're not on the train because of climate change. They're on the train because of a response to climate change. That's true. Which is a, a very strange position to take. I, I think that what I remember most about 2014 was not being sure what this film's politics were because of the whole roach-eating insect uh, protein thing, the fact that the world was not ruined by climate change, but actually by mankind's attempt to respond to climate change that like ended up ice-nining the world like in uh, Cat's Cradle. I mean, the way I'm looking at it, like... I saw it as, you know, the world was going to end unless we took drastic action, which, you know, check, that's accurate to real life. And the way they responded was basically like by nuking it. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, let's nuke the atmosphere to save ourselves, <laughs> um, which, you know, we do have a, at least for a few more days, we have a president in office who suggested possibly nuking hurricanes. So it's not the stupidest thing that's been suggested even if it hadn't happened before then. I always think of Nelson's poster in the Simpsons episode, Lisa loves <laughs> Lisa's date with density where he has the nuke, the whales poster. She's like, nuke the whales. <laughs> Gotta nuke nuke something. Something. Yeah. <laughs> One thing quickly, I forgot Alison pill was in this movie, but it's not actually that I forgot she was in this movie. I thought it was Brie Larson. That's fair. And I think it's because when this came out, I remember seeing Alison Pill and being like, oh, she's from Scott Pilgrim, because that was the only thing I knew her from at the time. And somehow in my mind, in the years since, I thought that Brie Larson played the teacher in that scene. And watching it now, I like Brie Larson, but she could never bring the energy that Alison Pill did to this. I don't think I knew most of this cast when I saw this film. Like, I, I'd maybe seen Captain America. No, I had maybe seen an Avengers movie. But I don't remember knowing who Octavia Spencer was beforehand. I don't think I was, like, a Tilda Swinton fan the way I am now at the time. Wow, okay. And I think of this movie as, like, kind of a, you know, attempt at making a blockbuster on a sort of mid-budget level, which, you know, shows a little bit at the CGI seams. But it, it is packed with, like, movie stars or at least like people that were about to be names well chris evans was already a star because i knew him originally from comedy central airing not another teen movie every afternoon from 1999 <laughs> to 2004 and i always liked him i even went and saw this is gonna date me i swear i'm not 100 years old i went and saw the movie push in theaters I also went and saw the movie Jumper in theaters, which had Jamie Bell and Hayden Christensen. And both Push and Jumper were both attempts at starting a superhero franchise that had no comic book precedent. But Chris Evans was was pretty well known to me because by this point he had also been in Scott Pilgrim, where he plays one of the evil exes. Of course, yeah. Jamie Bell had been Billy Elliot in the 90s in a film that I still haven't seen, but was desperate to see and was forbidden to see um, about a little dancing boy who danced because he wanted to dance. But yeah, I, I feel like maybe Octavia Spencer had not yet reached like a level of fame where she had like done 
things, but she was mostly a supporting character. Even Luke Pasqualino, who plays Gray, who is like the sort of um, weird fighter killer guy who has a strange relationship with John Hurt. Even he had been in Gen 2 of Skins, Mm -hmm. which I had attempted to watch at that point. He was my favorite part of Gen 2 Skins, even though everybody hates his character. But, you know, other than Effie, this goes out to my Skins fans, other than Effie, he was definitely my favorite character of Gen 2. (laughs) But it's shocking to me, I guess maybe this was mid-budget because none of them were blockbuster draws yet other than Chris Evans. I think it's like punching above its weight budget wise. Like I think it's a bigger movie than its budget allows in some ways, Um, but it it totally gets away with it. It's got really beautiful production design and a lot of like soaring ideas, but like this isn't an Avengers budget or something. It's a much smaller film than that. It almost feels like it kind of at points is doing the, the cube trick i have not seen cube but um are you talking about just like limiting the location with a big idea well cube only has one set it's one cube and in theory they're moving from one cube to another within a larger cube and that's you know kind of part of the conceit but each cube that they go into is only made to look slightly different by like shooting from a different angle (laughs) and using a different colored gel light behind the walls like and it kind of seems like this is doing that at points too, where like all of the train, at least until they reach the point where they're interacting with the people at the head of the train, the front of train people, they all kind of look like the same compartment, just dirty and disused in different ways. It is interesting that this film has no middle class. <laughs> There's just the rich and the poor, and like the only thing that exists in the middle are like the peacekeepers of the rich. Yeah, I would say that the idea of a middle class is kind of disappearing from uh, real life as well. The gap's at least widening. No, that's. I think that's the point. Yeah, I, I do. Want, I do want to talk about the politics of this um, in relation yeah, to the coup. Absolutely, the real life coup. I, I think what strikes me in comparing them is there are some ways in which it's paralleled. The idea that John Hurt has no skin in the game. And it's just like sending people out to do his bidding. And there's like all this bloodshed that he never sees or has to deal with. Very reminiscent of Trump right now. But what is weird to me is how clear the politics are in Snowpiercer. Like it's very like haves versus have nots. And we watch the have nots fight their way sort of futilely to make a better life for themselves and only get crushed in the attempt. And the politics of what happened at the Capitol last week is so much more muddled. Like the people who were there and what they wanted out of breaking into that building is so confused to me. Like there are poor people who like are infuriated with the government. And once they got inside, it's them taking pictures for Instagram and like showing like, Oh, I got one up on this government that I feel like is oppressing me mostly because I'm a white supremacist and I feel like white race is being oppressed. Yeah. Accountability often seems like oppression to people who've never had it. But there's also people in there with like tactical gear who were there to assassinate members of Congress and had specific targets in mind and were there as like a militant action. And both of those things were happening because the politics of what sent them there is so muddled. Like the only clear thing you can really put on there is Everyone is financially stressed right now, and there is a racial element, both leftover 
resentment over Obama having won the presidency. I mean, that has fueled all of Trump's political career, yeah. like from its start till now. And then, you know, more recently, the fact that black people voted uh, in this past election and voted him out of office only like threw a ton of fuel in that fire and, you know, basically motivated a bunch of racists, both people who are CEOs and like actually financially solvent people and then other people who feel like they had no choice but to take guns and join that militia. Yeah. That is such a weird soup of things that I cannot consolidate with each other. Whereas like in Snowpiercer, everything is so clear cut and I understand what the politics are. That's where I'm coming from. It's strange. The characters in Snowpiercer with whom we identify and sympathize are fighting on the side of justice and righteousness. They have been deprived. Unlike the people who committed the coup last week who perceive inconvenience as oppression. You know, people who have never experienced real oppression in their lives. We are currently in the 10th month of a pandemic while other nations are able to celebrate with one another and go to each other's homes for the holidays and travel widely because their leadership did not politicize a public health crisis in order to maintain power. And our country keeps having to go into lockdowns again and again and again. And I have no idea who first made this comparison online, but it is like when you are in a classroom and there's one or two students who keep acting out and you keep getting everything pushed back. Lunch gets pushed back, recess gets pushed back, all until fucking, you know, I'm going to say Matt and Jesse because they were the troublemakers in my class until Matt and (laughs) Jesse stop messing around. And Matt and Jesse literally cannot help themselves because of some misplaced sense of personal freedom that has nothing to do with personal responsibility. And because of that, there are people who are experiencing huge economic losses, but it is not because the lockdowns aren't working. And it's not because, quote unquote, the Democrats want us to lock down and ruin businesses with some end goal that only makes sense if you've been completely radicalized by QAnon's nonsense. Yeah. It's it's because individually this country cannot get it together because of our nationwide rhetoric of personal freedom over personal responsibility. And it is infuriating. Well, okay. I, I do think there is an economic reason why this is continuing that has nothing to do with personal choice. Like, I, for one, have to go to my job three or four days a week right now, and I'm around a lot of people who aren't in my household, and that number of people and who those people are changes every week. So I'm being exposed to coronavirus-friendly conditions weekly just so I can keep a job and keep paying my mortgage. Yes. And that's not a personal choice for me. That's like me being pushed into that situation for financial reasons. That is extending how long this like economy killing pandemic is stretching on. The funny thing is like you would think that if there were going to be any kind of organization to protest uh, what's happening right now, it would be against those conditions. But instead, they're completely missing the ideological target that is like continuing the pandemic. It's clearly... Not always people in your position, but there are people who expect to be served. 
whether it be in a right. restaurant or a salon or a nail studio or a dentist's office or a sushi restaurant or various other places. And they don't perceive the working class that makes up the labor of those businesses to be important, to have the right to safety in the way that they do. And it's made, been made clear over and over and over again. So like I have been fortunate enough to work from home and I'm sorry that you have had to go back to the office and you are being exposed, you know, to a dangerous situation when if we just had locked down for three weeks, 10 months ago, none of us would be in this situation. Yeah. But people couldn't make it 11 days without going up to the Wisconsin State Capitol House and talking about being able to get their hair done and their roots showing and needing their nails painted because the virus had already been politicized by a fascist regime at that point. Right. The misinformation machine has like convinced these people that they are oppressed and that one has been gotten over on them with the pandemic and with the election that they're being screwed by Congress and they're being deployed as an army for this person who could not give less of a shit about their safety or their freedom. They're going to be locked up in jail. At least about a hundred people have been arrested in the past week since the coup. And it's just, it's just so weird to me that they see themselves as the heroes of this movie that we just watched. Like they see themselves as this like oppressed class that has to fight for their freedom. And, and kind of the results are the same in, in both instances, even though they're dead wrong about that. The result is that like nothing really changed um, except they're fucked now. <laughs> and that's kind of the, the end of this movie is like the capitalist system that keeps all these people in place um, does not change at the end of this movie. If anything, it's still working perfectly fine until the, like the last couple minutes. That is the scary part is like, if this entire thing collapses, the last couple minutes seem pretty fucking rough to live through. I think it is fascinating that whenever people were asking Bong about why he thought parasite appealed to so many people in so many places, considering that like, and this was especially being asked by like reporters in the West who were like, how could a Korean director create something that meant something to me? Our cultures are so different. And he was, and you know, he said, well, we all live in one nation called capitalism. And although the people in Snowpiercer are justified in their revolution, it does turn out that they are also being manipulated despite being completely correct in their desire for justice and their desire for upheaval there is someone backing their movement who is working with the fascist overseer and that's the part that bugs me because that i don't perceive as happening in the real world of course the right loves to be like george soros this and george soros that and john birch society blah 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 but there's no one behind the BLM protests, sending them out to throw their bodies into the gears of the machinery in order to reduce the surplus population. And all that aside, I think that when Bong Joon-ho looks at capitalism, he does say salvation does not come from within the train, whether it be from the back or the front or the left or the right. It only comes from the train derailing. That is freedom, and that is salvation. And I guess that is where his ideology as a person comes from, and I think that he is right in that. 
Yeah, that that train, unless it it falls off the tracks, will just continue like that forever. It's already created a mythology that reinforces itself. What a fucked up thing to have to live through, though. Like, if that if that happens in our lifetime, and we're trying to like think of a better way to live, there is going to be a violent moment that causes that change. Um, I do kind of want like poke at like Parasite becoming this cultural moment last year. Do you think? that movie does anything exceptional that this one doesn't like, I kind of like how scrappy and eccentric this film is. And I wonder why that didn't strike the same chord in people. So the problem with so much of white Hollywood's anti-racist, like theoretically anti-racist text is that it makes racism seem like an individual problem rather than a societal one like where racism is always solved by changing one person's mind or one community's mind because people who are racist in institutional ways in invisible ways in uninspected ways aren't going to look at green book or driving miss daisy or the help and see themselves in these caricatures of a racist person and say, oh God, that's me. Are we the baddies? And I think that Snowpiercer has that same thing happening where no one living in our world is going to look at Tilda Swinton's character and say, that's me. Unless you're the ghost of Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> right. Or like you might see, okay, so there's one scene right before they see the dentist's office. There's just a woman knitting and reading in like her compartment. And that's like the banality of fascism, right? Like so many people who are so willing to just be like out of sight, out of mind, as far as like what the cost is in blood and sweat and labor to keep that system of organization, governance and authority and power. They're like, oh, it doesn't affect me. I'm just going to read my books and I'm going to do my knitting. But it's so blink and you miss it. And I think that what Parasite does that Snowpiercer doesn't do is it does make everything a little bit more subtle, but it also gives you characters that no matter where you are on the political spectrum, no matter where you are as far as like self-satisfaction and how you view yourself, I'm a good person, I'm a person who makes bad choices, I'm a good person who makes good choices. I'm fundamentally good, even though sometimes I do things that are harmful to others. It shows you where you exist in that society and then makes you say, oh shit, I am that person and it's not a good thing in a way that Snowpiercer can't because everyone is so much more archetypical in like an analogous way. I don't know if you agree or not, but... No, I, I do. I think the villains in that movie are a lot less exaggerated, like that shopping trip with the mother of the house after the literal shitstorm like ruins the poor family's lives. She doesn't know exactly how much harm she's causing by planning a party while this man is just listening to her, you know, complain about the minor rainstorm she suffered the night before. Yeah. That is a lot more nuanced and like layered than, you know, rich people equal exploitative in Snowpiercer. But I guess, I guess I have kind of like a chip on my shoulder a lot of times about like, over-the-top action stuff just not being taken as seriously like this movie should have been a big hit and instead it's this kind of like quiet cult film that like the Weinstein company tried to like 
fuck with uh, when it came out. They were going to like cut, I think like 15 minutes out of it before it like hit American theaters and Bong Joon-ho had to like argue about that. And it's very public back and forth with them. Something they were notorious for doing for a lot of movies they picked up for American distribution. And, you know, Parasite, you know, all these years later gets a much better treatment, maybe because he's a bigger name, but it played in theaters for months and months and months. And the word of mouth was so good. I was like, where were y'all back in 2014? Why did I watch this in a near empty theater uh, on a weekend when it first came out? I don't know. I just wish people paid more attention to this kind of like artfully crafted genre filmmaking because that's the stuff I like to see get made and I want it to be financially solvent for that reason. Fair enough. I'm selfish. No, I, I get it. <laughs> I understand exactly what like you're putting down. I'm picking it up. I just... And all the times that I have thought back to having seen this movie in the years since I saw it, I, I, I remember I got like 10 minutes into this and I was like, there's an axe battle in this because that's not what I remember <laughs> at all. The things that stand out to me in my mind are... Uh, Allison Pill pulling a gun out of a basket of eggs and Ed Harris in his silk pajamas and Tilda's speech about, you wouldn't put a shoe on your head. Ha ha ha. And <laughs> the rave and then everybody in their opium den and the revelation about what the food is. Those are the things that stand out in my mind, not the axe battle or even like the let's shoot each other as the train curves around scene. Like I, I'm like, Oh right. This movie is violent, but that's not what I remember about it at all. I think it could have been popular if that were like the ideas that are at the forefront of it, you know, in a better world. Um, well, a lot of things would be different in a better world, but in a slightly better world, um, this would have been a hit and uh, Bong Joon-ho would have had his like Oscar run sooner than he did. I'm glad it finally happened. Parasite's a great movie. I don't mean to sound like I'm denigrating it by comparison. I, I love them both. Well, I don't think we're going to be leaving this alone. I think this like political discussion through uh, movie allegories will continue. I did not intend that to be the conversation today. Hopefully I didn't overstep the bounds of movie talk uh, too much, but it was kind of unavoidable. Uh, we watched a movie about a coup the same week that there was a real life coup attempt. Yeah. Life imitates art criticism i guess life is shit (laughs) life is so specifically dystopian right now that um anytime i pick a sci-fi dystopian film about the horrors of the capitalist structure we live under uh it's going to be unavoidable that it mirrors something that happens in the news that week um it's just been an an exceptional week Uh, and i'm still trying to make sense of it hopefully that comes across i have no clear answers on anything that's happening right now i'm trying to piece my way through it yeah i have a lot of thoughts and a lot of feelings and a lot of things that I know to be true and a lot of concerns about what's going to happen next. And I also feel like it's uh, important for me to stand up and say things at certain times and also allow uh, others to speak at certain times and not become the white man who is having this discourse as well. So any reticence I have about that is about where in my praxis we're standing as far as like making room for non-white uh, voices to be heard as this is a white supremacist coup but next time that you and i talk we will be talking about a sci-fi utopian coup attempt which will at least be a refreshing change of pace i hope yeah i kind of need some hope honestly uh that sounds like a good change of pace uh next episode we're gonna be talking about bloody nose empty pockets which are people drinking in a bar for 90 minutes 
basically as their world is ending and they only have each other to hold on to. So maybe we'll get a little grimmer before that sunshine peeks through. If anybody is looking for movement leaders to follow, I recommend Brie Newsom Bass on Twitter. From there, look at who she follows, follow some of them. They are very serious. They are very honest about the situation that we are in, but they are also bringing me hope in dark times. So for the listeners out there who want to be reminded that our country actually has, although the Confederate flag has never flown in the United States Capitol, for a lot of our fellow citizens, this is not the worst that it has ever been. It may seem like it, but part of that is our own white fragility that we need to inspect and come to terms with. And keep in perspective and remember that labor creates all value. It's not going to be a party that saves us. It's going to be our connections. And anything that I say more than that just sounds like flippant buffoonery, but it's only because I am not capable of recapitulating the voices of people like Renus and Bass who are saying it better than I could. And so you should just listen to them anyway. And please take care of yourself and other people in your community as best as you can right now. And um, happy new year. <laughs> at, <Fuck>. least, <laughs> at least we've made it into 2021 and we're still going to be here for you for a little while. At least we're here for the foreseeable future. So love one another, love yourself and 